0: J-Cut and this is the K-Cut Cinema Podcast for Cinephiles. I'm James. I'm a content creator and a stay-at-home husband. I produce and release music under the A-List Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast and I am a part of the Films Fatale team and I actually finally released my first article for my column Gorilla Film Fair and it is on Robert Rodriguez El Mariachi.
1: And it was awesome. I'm Rachel and I am write for films Fatale as well. I like to specialize in world cinema and lost movies as well as the classics. And I'm really excited for our topic this week.
2: I'm Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers of films fatal. I'd argue I don't have any columns nearly as as awesome as the world of movies and guerrilla film fair, which are so educational. And also, uh, Rachel's a lost film segment as well. They're so educational and versatile on. So many things in cinematic history for, you know, under under many different hats. So please do check those out. They, they are sensational. So uh, what we are going to discuss this week, um, and this was my topic this week, uh, something a little, you know, sometimes I can have some juvenile topics, like let's do cinematic truth or dare. Or, uh, you know, somewhere down the line, we kind of like ate cinematic foods that people were eating in these films. Uh, some great concoctions there, but things are going to get a little a little super serious here uh, this week. I don't know why I was thinking about this. Um, maybe it's because I've got a nephew who I kind of just have in the back of my mind all the time now. Um, maybe just because I'm... Uh, sorry, I just dropped something. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm... Aware that I'm getting older and it's not a fun feeling, but at the same time it's a beautiful thing, uh, you know the thing that we call life. So I was thinking, let's let's work in let's work with some extremities here when it comes to the span of our cinematic history. So initially, in one previous episode, I've asked us to detail different parts of our lives. With different films, but now we're going to go straight for the bookends. So there's a little bit of thematic relevancy here, but at the same time, there isn't because we're not necessarily detailing our own lives. What we're going to do for the two halves of this episode are in the first half, if because uh, none of us have children, none of us co-hosts have children presently. That we know if of. we were <laughs> that we know of uh, Rachel. Rachel. Okay. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> um. Once we were to ever have a child, if we were to ever have a child, what would be the first film that we show our child? So this could be interpreted in different ways. It could be like literally the first thing they ever see or the first thing they see when they're a little old enough to understand. That's going to be the first, the first half of this episode. And the second half, we flip it back around to us again. Eventually, this wonderful ride called Life is going to finish... It's going to wrap up for all of us. Hopefully us and you listeners as well live long, happy, healthy lives. But if we were to decide through some twist of fate, what would be the last thing we would ever watch to maybe relive life or to enjoy and savor our final moments? What would be the ultimate way to wrap up our lives? It could be a favorite film. It could be a thematically relevant film. It could be a fitting film, whatever it may be. So, Let's get back to the the happier thoughts here. So, if we were to have children, what would be the first film that we would intentionally show them? So, who wants to go first?
0: I can go first.
2: Okay, so James, um, I'm I'm very curious. Would you be showing uh, your your newborn? Would you be showing them some shoestring budget film, or would you have something a little bit more, you know, something else, something a little different in line?
0: So, I decided to go with a little older. For context, um, it's already been decided. I don't get control over choosing what movies future child views until the age of seven.
1: Fair enough. That's considered to be the age of reason.
0: Yeah. Well, it's mostly because, like, sh- my wife wants to have, like, do like the fun films. I get to introduce something a little bit more serious or a little bit new- more nuanced around that mark. And I figured seven would be a good age because. I mean, children don't really become that self-aware until around five and even more so the personalities don't really start to develop until seven. So I was thinking what I would want to introduce because it's, you know, I kind of took it as what would you want to introduce them as cinema? As opposed to just just movies. Yeah, you can interpret it that way as well. Yeah. So I thought what would be fun for kids, but also kind of checks the marks on not only like budding cinephilia, but also kind of like something that could be impactful for them for years to come. So I decided to go with Hayao Miyazaki's Kiki's Delivery Service.
2: I am so glad I did not pick uh, Miyazaki. I almost did. So I'm so glad we got some variety here because that's an excellent choice.
0: I figured it'd be good because one, it's an animated film and it's a, a great example of a good family film. that's fun for everybody but it's also a good way to introduce them to somebody who's a more nuanced artist because it's like Miyazaki could be obviously considered an auteur because you know the studio in general has a way of doing things and it goes beyond just having a style so not only is it fun for kids but it also is something it's like this is kind of a good example of great art but also i think the story would be important for a kid to experience because it definitely teaches them the importance of building self-esteem, cultivating self-confidence and understanding the potential of independence. As you see with Kiki in the film, you know, she's a young girl on her own and she has to kind of navigate her way without any help. And I think it's important for kids to learn that because if you don't start that at a young age, there's a point where people kind of get lost when they realize they don't have any safety nets. Like I've been seeing a lot of things where people are discussing how, you know, there's just this drop in morale the day after graduating from college Mm -hmm. because that safety net is no longer there and they're in the real world officially. So I think it's good to show them a story of somebody who's like a powerful character and who, despite what troubles they face, you know, can overcome these problems. Also, I think it's a good example because Miyazaki decided to go the opposite route of Disney because Disney when they portray like the female characters, they're always like the damsels in distress or the princess, you know, the ones always in trouble. Whereas he always makes them point of like the capable character. Like they don't need anybody saving them. And children
2: as well. Like they're not oh, yeah. like, and, like and, and, yeah, places, children yeah.
0: are actually taken seriously. They're not treated as kids. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just, I just think that, that, you know, it, it's also, it's just timeless. You could play it now, decades ago when it came out, and decades from now.
2: Yeah, I feel like, I feel like uh, Kiki's delivery service, or a, a lot of Miyazaki films, are so fitting because, and I was having this discussion with somebody the other day, it might have been our mutual friend John, uh, James, where... Mm-hmm. Miyazaki is one of the very few storytellers who can kind of just make stuff happen in his films. And the answer is because of magic or because of fantasy or because of these unwritten rules.
0: But But it's also not contrived.
2: Well, that's that's the thing, because he does it so well and beautifully and in a way that you're curious to learn more. It doesn't feel like an excuse. It feels like a portal. And you just get lost in his films. And I feel like for a child who's finally able to really understand what they're watching, that's a really good filmmaker to be introducing them to because it'll make them feel like, you know, possibilities of their imagination are endless.
0: Also, his animation team, top notch every film. Oh, yeah. It's like very, very few studios can compare what they pull off.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's one of one of the greatest working studios in all of cinema for sure.
1: Personally, I despise when media condescends to children, when they treat them I don't know, as if entertainment needs to be simplistic just because they're young. And Miyazaki's a good way to get around that.
2: Yeah, because like a lot of uh, a lot of kids entertainment either resort to fart jokes and toilet humor or to the same jokes all the time and you can pinpoint exactly what which ones i'm referring to like if somebody does something awkward and it cuts to people looking kind of stunned and trying to move on or if they're uh you know if like there's so many like cookie cutter jokes that are in all of these kids films and it basically destroys the the imagination behind storytelling. And I find it so frustrating when these films just resort to cliches and formulas and, you know, these must have types of jokes or images or scenes. Miyazaki, honestly, like anything can happen. And that's, that's why it feels great because anything can happen. And, you know, even as like an adult, there are a few filmmakers like him or Guillermo del Toro where I feel like a kid again. And, you know, I'm like watching these mystical, magical films. But Miyazaki's is probably the best at doing that out of any filmmaker I've ever I've ever witnessed. And, you know, may as well start that magic young.
0: Right. And I mean, it's also, you know, it makes you realize children have a higher aptitude for abstract thought than we'd like to think or most adults like to think i mean kids aren't stupid
2: they're not like shoved into shoeboxes quite just yet and like compartmentalized and told this is acceptable and this isn't they're still at that age where literally a donkey can learn how to breathe fire because its ant was an ant I don't know. Like none of it would make sense. Perhaps a fire ant. None of it makes sense, but to a child, it does. And Miyazaki plays into that notion where it's like, well, if that can exist, why not this? And he plays ball with these kids in a way that, like a Mister Rogers would, or you know, so many of these uh, these storytellers that actually don't just sell to kids. They understand kids, and there's a very big difference of that. and It ends up in these breathtaking, timeless pieces. I think that's already a fantastic start. Rachel, what about you? What would you be showing your child first, you know, at any age? Also, yeah, you can define what age you would be showing them.
1: Well, mine comes with a bit of a story. So when I was in my early teens, uh, my dad and I went to a screening of silent films that was held at our local theater, And it was the first time I'd ever seen a silent movie. I was really excited. And, you know, the other kids at school were like, oh, why are you going to that? It's black and white. It's silent. That's so boring. And when I got there, I was watching the movie. And in the front row, there was very loud shrieking and giggling by a group of people who were clearly delighted with this movie. And they were all four or five years old. Wow. So, The movie was Buster Keaton, Sherlock Jr., as well as a couple of shorts. And it got me thinking about those silent comedians, uh, Chaplin, Lloyd, and Keaton are the ones on my mind. Mm -hmm. And every time I've shown them, no matter which country I'm in, no matter the age of the audience, there's something universal. There's something that they can find joy in. It could be the sophistication of the comedy, it could be, ha ha, man falls down, it's funny. But I always think of those four and five-year-olds in the front row of the theater giggling over Buster Keaton, even though that movie was about 90 years old at the time. And so I think in honor of that, I will show Sherlock Jr. to my future kid and get them hooked on silent cinema forever.
0: Not gonna lie, I almost went with the general as my pick. Yeah, uh, because that's the only Buster Keaton movie I've seen, but I saw that in school and I don't remember when, but silent cinema is the perfect medium for kids from birth to about five because it's like you know they don't really care about dialogue and they're not concerned with it it's all visual so also like you know the what they were able to pull off in the silent era has yet to really be topped in you know the following eras of comedy
1: i think in many ways silent films explored more of cinema as a medium than the talkies did
0: I almost
2: went with uh, City Lights, actually. So I, I think uh, we're all on the same page. What I feel like really works with with these films and like Sherlock Jr. especially, you can go as young as possible, even if they can't read. Like, so the title cards just aren't going to do anything because the visual dialogue-less storytelling kind of just pertains to anyone. And like you said, People, you know, these kids who are like four or five having having a ball. Maybe they don't understand the brilliance of what Buster Keaton is doing with this this life, trying to transpose himself into a film because he's a projectionist wanting to be a part of a, of a major motion picture. Mm-hmm. But they do understand that Man Fall Down is hilarious, and especially the way that he does so is is really funny. So.
1: And I compare it to the jaded middle schoolers I was talking to earlier that day who were all like, why would you go see a silent movie? And the four and five-year-olds haven't learned that you need to be cool and up with the latest things yet. So it's a point where they can just experience joy because it's joyful.
2: And it's one of those things where when you're an adult, you become so explorative. Hopefully you become explorative and the unknown isn't lame. The unknown is a new thing to try. But when you're a child, yeah, you haven't been overridden with the this programming to think that I don't understand it. So therefore it must not be good for me. Um, when you're a child, you're willing to just kind of try anything. And, you know, I, I, don't recall cause I was like way too young, way too young, but I was familiar with Charlie Chaplin, even just as a person. Cause I think there were shorts on, on TV back when I lived in South Africa, um, I was just familiar with him enough that when I saw people dressed up like him or I just saw the image, I recognized it and I recognized, oh, it's that funny guy. don't know his name, but I recognized it and I recognized that it was impactful enough that it really left a mark on me. And I'm sure, you know, whether it's Lloyd or, or Keaton, you know, that would have the same effect.
1: Oh, yeah. That kind of physical comedy, I think, is just universal. I've also heard a story that the movie Modern Times with Charlie Chaplin was taken to places where, you know, Modern Times is all about what was then the contemporary workplace, the factories, things Mm -hmm. like that. And they took this film to places where there had never been a factory and they showed it to people and people were still rolling on the floor.
2: Yeah, because it's one of those things where you don't have to be in the know to understand. And, you know, he was trying to say something with Modern Times Great Dictator, um, Circus. But I feel like City Lights, which doesn't really have thematic relevancy of any sort outside of maybe good karma trying to do positive things, even if society strings back on you. It's more a stripped down story and perhaps why it's his most is most breathtaking, because it's as open of a story as you could tell. But yeah, even in these other films, where whether it's like The Gold Rush or The Kid, where it has these very clear-cut premises, um, yeah, it's applicable to anybody. You don't need to be a parental figure to understand The Kid. You don't need to have gone through a recession and The Gold Rush for The Gold Rush. You know, You don't need to actually identify with what stories he's telling in order to understand why they're amazing.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: For mine, um, it's hilarious because I sincerely was thinking Chaplin specifically, but still Silent Cinema and Miyazaki for my own. But ultimately, I ended up going with uh, something that's always been on my mind is how Disney not only was an animation studio that was meant for kids, but it was also like just at one point it took its art more seriously than anything else, more seriously than itself as a business. So, um, for me, I feel like, um, Fantasia was a little, a little too mature and maybe not quite right for somebody who's super young. I'm thinking like very young, like, uh, maybe even like, you know, a couple of years old. I went with Bambi. I feel like Bambi is so riveting, especially for a child like this multi-layered story on the cycles of life. And it even like has brushes with death as well, which is, you know, pretty serious. But I feel like it, it handles it insanely well for somebody who might be a young child watching.
1: I mean, my mom tried to teach me about death via the Lion King, and I thought my grandmother had been killed by wildebeest instead of old age, so.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) That's intense.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well then, I don't know then. Well, I mean, you don't really see the death in Bambi, but I mean, you kind of hear it. So, I don't know, maybe it's similarly a scarring and uh, misinformative, I don't know. But I feel like the art style, like uh, this is when Walt Disney and company were still trying to tell like visual suites almost like uh like an like an orchestral masterpiece so like you know like the, the forest fire or you know the spring blooming you know the, the snow falling it's just so stunning to look at and to see you know this little deer and his friends kind of just aging and and being a part of life this crazy thing called life um and you witness so much going on and, and it's a very brief duration and for me that's that's kind of it i would I would be like, this is not just a cute film, a fun film, but it's also like a masterful one that hopefully will will take your breath away and then, you know, cause your mind to get as creative as possible, just looking at how gorgeous this animation is. And um, hopefully you get something out of it as well that sticks with you. And not just being like, you know, possibly an early favorite film, but something that might teach him about life as well. So yeah, I'm going
0: with Bambi. All right. So before we move on, I actually was listening to I forgot what it is. Dax Shepard has a podcast,
1: Armchair Expert.
0: Yes, that's what it is. Thank you. He had Quentin Tarantino on, and he discussed the first film he showed his young child. Oh,
2: I, I didn't even know I that. Need to so, hear this. yeah, that's not why I came up with this premise. That's what a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I'm
0: what, so he thought because you know. I don't even know how old. I think his son's less than two at at this point. I think oh, so yeah. is maybe. But he said, okay, so he watched the movie in parts, right? Because, you know, he needed his attention for like about 15 minutes before he'd kind of divert. But um, he ended up playing because he wanted to show him. He thought a good one would be Minions, but he ended up putting on Despicable Me 2 without realizing it. So what he would do is he would show like 15 minutes and then he just kind of like go off and play and do his own thing so when he get back to when they revisit it he'd like go back a f- like five minutes and then watch it in sections and then eventually they got the whole way through so yeah he says the first movie he's he watched with his son was despicable me too which is kind of funny because he also complained that um because he he tries to avoid netflix but that was the only way he could watch it
1: Aww.
0: and then dax explained a movie that he showed his kids and I don't know, it wasn't the first one but he showed his kids Pee-wee's Big Adventure and that
1: would be a they just movie
0: didn't movie. get it and he, and Quentin was like, no, you're supposed, he's like, did you show them the show first Pee-wee's Big Playhouse or, or Pee-wee's Playhouse or the movie first? He said the movie no, first, the he's, like, he's yeah. like, no, you're supposed to show them the kids show first because I'm like, yeah, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is not something for kids, it's just too weird
2: Oh my goodness Well, uh, you know, you know, things are are quite strange when uh, when Quentin Tarantino, of all people, chose a better, more fitting film for your child.
0: And Dax Shepard, you think that I think Dax Shepard would pick a great kids movie. No, he chooses Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Like like large Marge would would horrify children. It wouldn't give them nightmares for the rest of their lives. I guess what I guess one thing they asked, they asked if Pee Wee was supposed to be an adult or a child. Uh,
2: I still
1: don't know. That is a good question.
2: (laughs) I still can't tell you. I don't honestly. Uh, I
0: wouldn't even show a kid like Pee Wee's Playhouse because I'm not gonna lie. There's never any explanation for the word of the day, so the first time you see that is terrifying because they're like freaking out over it. I'm just like, because I I watched it. It got syndicated by Adult Swim, and I'm like, oh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. The first time it happens, I'm like, why do? Why would kids watch this? This is terrifying.
1: I think they were tougher back then.
0: Yeah. Maybe. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't know, but uh, I'll, I'll say this though: um, we don't know if uh, Pee Wee is a child or an adult. But uh, you know, I will say this: like everybody else, you know, he he is going to get old one day, and you know, I'd like to think maybe what would he show himself on? You know, his, his final his final days alive. But you know, maybe that's a discussion for another episode. Uh, instead, we're going to reflect on our own choices. So what? Would we want to be our final film that we were that we would ever see? Should we be in control of our final hours alive? So, um, I mean, technically, somebody could say an answer like uh, "Satan Tango" or uh, "The Decalogue," because then you're guaranteed like an extra ten hours or something. But like, uh, let's get real here. Um, Who wants to go first?
1: I will. So, the only proper answer for this question is the final episode of Six Feet Under, but that is television. So, um,
2: that's I fair. thought
1: a lot about this because it all depends on what your take is on death. Do I want to be kind of ironic and funny? Do I want something that's personally meaningful to me? Or do I want something very depressing that faces it head on? Death, it's coming for you. But I eventually settled on Harold and Maude, Hal Ashby, Ooh. 1971. Because it is about death, but it's also about life and about embracing life and learning to live again when you feel like maybe you don't know where you're going. And it tackles so many taboos and such hard subjects, but yet there's this joy that is through the whole movie. It's just such a incredibly life-affirming piece that I think it would be a great thing to slip away to, to especially with that cool soundtrack. I also plan to be a wild old lady like Maud, so...
2: I feel like that's uh, that's a fantastic answer because I feel like even if it's very brief and even if the, the feeling doesn't, doesn't last long, if you're afraid of death for like a very split amount of time, it feels like it's going to be okay. So it's definitely an assuring, darkly comedic take that might be comforting for some. What's yours? I went with something a little different. For me, I feel like There's kind of like one main answer where for me, this is the embodiment of not just life, but the entirety of the concept of life as far back as as we've discovered, you know, through archaeology and. And science and history. And that's uh, that's the Tree of Life. I went with Terrence Malik's Tree of Life. I feel like...
0: I knew that it. That was I, one yeah. I thought of, too. I, I was thinking about it, too. I was like, should I go with Tree of Life? But I'm like, nah, Andreas is probably going to pick that one.
1: <laughs> James, exact same thing.
0: <laughs> what's, what's hilarious is that
2: actually wasn't the one I was going to pick. The one I was going to pick, I felt like, was even more obvious because I brought it up before. I almost went with the red turtle, but I've discussed it way too many times on the spot. So I was like, let me go with something else. So you, that was actually my plan B. So I, am glad I'm still predictable. <laughs> so, um, tree of life. I feel like tree of life, even if you're like a, a non-religious person, is such, uh, an ethereal experience. And it feels like maybe this, this other place that we might go to, whether it's nothing, whether it's an afterlife, Maybe it too will be as beautiful as as life itself is. And yeah, I feel like that's, that's one hell of a way to go. So yeah, the Tree of Life.
1: That's a wonderful pick.
2: Thank you. Uh James, what about you? Are you going to go with a bang or something subtle or
0: <laughs> Well, in the midst of my thinking when I was originally, I was like, you know what? Tree of Life would be a good way to go, but I'm like, nah, Andres is definitely going to pick that one, so I got to go with something different.
2: Oh, <laughs> well, this is terrible. I'm I'm starting to get predictable.
0: <laughs> so, I don't know. I had a I had a hard time picking this one because I was trying to think like cuz like the thought instantly popped in my head, what if so what if I can't make that decision and someone decides a movie for me? Like that would be the worst thing in the world cuz like there there would be a oh wrong God. pick. And they
2: end up picking, like, Jack and Jill or something. It's like, right? maybe you need a laugh before you die. And it's like, no! And just, what if it
0: just was just your
1: kid now. choosing and you showed them the wrong movie when they were little and now they only like terrible films? Right?
2: <laughs> oh, that's, oh, you did something no. ironically, <laughs> and then it just ruined saying. everything? Well... <laughs> That's what I was saying. Like you have the choice here. This is this is if things go according to plan. I mean, if I'm <laughs> on my
0: deathbed, I plan on to be marathoning movies. This isn't my pick, but one movie I definitely will watch right before my death is Tremors, and I'll tell you why.
2: Oh, what? <laughs> okay. You
0: no know, it it was the first movie my wife showed me when we first started hanging out. Oh, uh-huh. okay. So
2: there's there's okay that so, that. That yeah, didn't work yeah you weren't
0: expecting that. Yeah, because she loves that movie. And then I and then I, I was awful and showed her primer. So that's the second one. That's the true answer.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so in going with the theme, I decided to pick a movie that I enjoyed but I don't quite give as much hype to as a lot of other people, I decided to go with Mr. Nobody.
2: Okay. So kind of similar to tree of life where you're looking at all of these different iterations of life in a, and a, you know, a greater, a greater oh, yeah, Well, okay. I mean, it's,
0: it's kind of a, you know, a wild concept, you know, someone who is capable of experiencing every phase of life in every permutation simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So it kind of got me thinking, Because the movie ends in with him making a specific decision on which path he really wants to go, even though it's it's still kind of weird because he's still experiencing everything all at once. But it kind of made me think at the end of the day, you decide how your life went for you. Right. So no matter what way you spin everything, there's always different sides you can look at it from. It kind of makes you think, you know what? You can decide if your life was good or not, regardless of what happened. And I think that kind of like plays along with the theme of the film because at the end of the day, he chose a specific path that was best for him or what he really wanted. But it was also, you know, he chose the good regardless of all the bad in any of these iterations that he was experiencing.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like a, a more touching take on like that whole Doctor Strange element of uh, of the Avengers where he can see every single possibility of a specific outcome and this one you're kind of even though you have access to any outcome you you're kind of forced to like witness the one and it's it's almost beautiful that like time is this infinite thing but at the same time everything lined up for these specific things for you in this specific reality so i mean what's what's more uh what's more overwhelming the fact that you'd have all of these endless opportunities or the fact that these ones lined up for you in a specific way. I might go with the latter. I feel like that's, and I feel like that's why the ending of, of uh, Mr. Nobody is so powerful because it's realizing that, that having no control means fate, which is kind of a little bit more beautiful than being able to have access to anything you want, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, you know, (laughs) Uh, now I'm thinking, like, if I was incapable of making the decision, what if somebody wanted to be cruel and just put on Manos, the hands of fate? That's my final film.
2: <laughs> uh, at least, well, I, uh, I mean, uh, depending on, on how you're going, you might die more quickly, which could be good. If <laughs> I, if I'm suffering, play that going. movie and I'll die real quick. <laughs> It's like all right, all right. I gotta go. That's place, that splice. Uh, that you know, it's it's coming from day from, and and nighttime all the time. That's it. I'm out. Goodbye. <laughs> Not to get too morbid here. Uh, let's bring things back to the present because luckily uh, we're we're all doing okay, and we hope you at home are doing okay as well. So we're going to bring things back to the present and just do our weekly recommendations. But we're also going to live in the present and. Uh, you know, you could communicate with us and Rachel's going to tell you how.
1: Yes. So we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the K cut. And if you want to join in our upcoming smorgasbord, which we are going to be recording next week, my goodness. Um, we have El Topo, road racers, the cane mutiny and the flowers of Shanghai coming up.
2: Wonderful. Yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be fantastic for now. We're going to do our, our weekly recommendations. So who wants to go first? I will. Okay, so
1: I thought of one movie, and it's because it's about parenthood, but in a very strange way, and that is Starbuck. I won't give anything away about the premise, but that. it's oh, very no. funny. A little, yeah, it's very funny. A little chaotic, but you've got to watch the Quebec version and not one of the up, uh, umpteen remakes. So go go watch no. Starbuck.
2: It has to be. It has to be the the OG one. That's uh, one of my girlfriend's all time favorite films. Oh, awesome. um, Yeah, I actually discovered it. Like I knew about it, but I actually watched it the first time through her. And that's actually going to be what my answer is, because, you know, James kind of got me thinking about uh, what my case is. And it's actually thematically relevant. Uh, Very first date Victoria and I ever did, we went to go see Interstellar. So that's going to be my, my weekly recommendation. I feel like it was kind of lukewarm. With its reception upon release, but I don't know. I feel like it's holding up pretty damn well, and I feel like its concepts of time, especially as a relative instrument in this grand scheme known as the, the vast universe. Plus, it's very accurate depictions of of space travel. Um, and, you know the use of the usage of black holes. I feel like it's a very fascinating film. Fantastic score. Um, very moving. I'd argue it's uh, it's Christopher Nolan's most moving film um so yeah i'm gonna go with interstellar but we also did a double billing we did a big hero six so i might as well shout that out as well but uh yeah interstellar is gonna
0: be my pick so i'm gonna go with something totally unrelated to anything we've talked about hey that's life for you so this is a movie i just watched literally probably a few days ago honestly it might have been a couple days ago i know it wasn't yesterday uh but i'm gonna go blood simple by the coen brothers Ooh, okay. nice. It's because it's like I, I want to dive into their filmography a bit more. And this is a really good debut film. Like, you know, I don't know what it is, but there are people who have mastered like the crime genre and they're a pair who've like definitely mastered it. Yeah. And I think for a debut film, it's sensational.
1: And they it's master fantastic. it on their own terms too.
0: And of course, you know, the debut of Frances McDormand.
1: Oh, oh yeah. Who is she? Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> just a, just a three time best actress winner, not a. Uh, two-time Best Actress winner
2: and one-time Supporting Actress winner. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, not, no salt there. We're petty. Uh, <laughs> let's not be petty because life life goes on and life is a beautiful thing. So we're going to wrap things up so you can go back to your lives. And thank you for, uh, for witnessing a little bit of ours. That was the K-Cut and we are now going into the L-Cut.